Life Between the Notes, where we are going beyond the bio and bringing you interviews of your favorite South Central Pennsylvania musicians. I'm Kirsten Myers, a local oboist living in the Lancaster area, and with me today is Morgan Davis, a local flutist also living in the Lancaster area. So hi, Morgan. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm here. Yes. <laughs> Been a long week. Been a long yeah, week. Yeah, busy summer. Yes, for sure. So today we are so happy that Dr. Will Rapp is here to share his musical life as a percussionist, conductor, professor, and clinician um, in Canada and several locations in the United States. So hello, Will, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with both of you today. So today's episode is sponsored by the Reading Musical Foundation, also known as RMF. The Reading Musical Foundation has advanced and advocated for music education and appreciation in Berks County since 1926. Signature programs of the foundation include RMF Scholarship Program, which provides over $200,000 in annual scholarships in Berks County or to Berks County music students. Operation Replay, an instrument recycling program that provides used instruments with deserving student musicians, as well as an annual grant program that provides more than $300,000 for music-related projects in the greater Reading community. You can learn more about RMF at their website, readingmusicalfoundation.org, or by finding them on Facebook and Instagram at Reading Musical Foundation. So here we are. Um, I'm not sure how long I've known Will, um, but it's been since he started conducting concerts with the Reading Pops Orchestra. Uh, so when was that, Will? When did you start? Well, that takes us back to the summer of 2000. 2000. Okay. All right. Wow. So it's been 22 years. Yes. A, a Father's Day concert that was supposed to happen under the uh, well-known linden tree by the Reading Public Museum. But it was a rain date, so they uh, shuttled us across the street to uh, actually a building that's not even there anymore now. The healthcare facility has been built there, but I remember there was an auditorium in that building. Yes. That's where we were shuttled off to. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. that yes. Wow. Wild <laughs> that 2000 was 22 years ago. <laughs> that doesn't feel like it's possible. I know. Yeah, anything in the 2000s seems new to me, and then it's like, no. <laughs> No, time has gone by. So, but regardless, um, I have to say that it's always been a pleasure playing under his baton. It's it's been a great experience. So here is more information about Dr. Will Rapp. Um, he holds his bachelor's and master's degree in music education from Westchester University, a diploma of fine arts in conducting from the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada and a Doctor of Musical Arts in Instrumental Conducting from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Dr. Rapp has served on the faculty of Millersville University, Southeastern Louisiana University, Iowa State University, and Kutztown University, where he retired in 2013 with the distinction of Professor Emeritus. In 2018, the Percussive Arts Society honored Dr. Rapp with a Lifetime Achievement in Education Award. 
Dr. Rapp has guest conducted, performed as a recitalist, and appeared as a clinician in 28 states and three provinces in Canada. So it is truly an honor to have you here today. That is an amazing list of accomplishments. Well, it's been a, a, a wonderful journey musically, and uh, I have, as we all do, um, mm -hmm. some very important mentors in our life to thank for that. I, I often reflect now of how I don't think any of us would be where we are without some people who have been very special in our lives, mentors, people who maybe pushed us beyond where we thought we could be pushed or supported us in a way that we maybe weren't felt we were ready to be supported in. And, um, uh, and, and I know for the many experiences that I've had, uh, just knowing that these mentors were so important to me I want to try to function in that same way to the people in which, in which I come in contact. That is great. So our focus in our podcast is South Central Pennsylvania musicians. And obviously you now live in the area, um, but did you grow up here? Actually, I am. I'm, I'm a Pennsylvanian. I was born in Easton, Pennsylvania, in the Lehigh okay. Valley area. Okay. and uh, was a, a product of uh, public education there for my first 10 years. And then uh, after my father remarried, we moved to Bethlehem. And I remember him saying to me, well, now there's two high schools in Bethlehem now. There's the Liberty High School and then a new one that they just built called Freedom. And I thought, well, since I'm a new kid in town, maybe I should go to the new school. So mm -hmm. uh, he and his wife decided to purchase a home that put us then in the in the district where I would attend Freedom. And of course, that's where I came in contact with Ronald Demke, uh, who was the uh, director of the Freedom High School Band and Orchestra at that time. Uh, of course, many know now Ronald Demke's uh, most well known for his uh, leadership of the Allentown Band. He is the conductor of the Allentown Band, uh, America's oldest uh, non-civilian band, and also serves as associate conductor of the Allentown Symphony, doing most of their pops concerts and nutcrackers and things of that nature. Okay. Wow. I was very fortunate in that, uh, not realizing it, uh, I was in school with uh, a rather large group of very talented musicians. Mm -hmm. And so we were exposed to great literature in the wind band, mm -hmm. but again, not, not knowing it and not knowing how good these people were around me. We were just, we were just all part of, of that, wonderful opportunity. Right. And so when I went to college and started replaying some of these, performing these again in either the symphonic band or wind ensemble, I thought, well, I did that in high school. Well, I did that in high school. <laughs> so yeah. I realized then what a, what, what a rich high yeah. school experience I had in, in terms of repertoire literature. Right, right. So, and now though you didn't start on a, on percussion or even a wind instrument, you you started on the violin, correct? No, no, I'm not. I have a rather I have a rather curious <laughs> beginning in that uh, our our elementary school uh, had a very forward thinking principal, and she started all third all third grade students in conversational French. Oh. So Madame Jensen was our French teacher, and she came in two afternoons a week and worked with I think all the third grade classes. We did third and fourth grade. And uh, she also brought in a gentleman to start a string program because they didn't have a functioning music program at this moment. Oh. 
So he started a string program and uh, uh, auditioned to a degree uh, all the second graders in the spring of their second grade year to determine who he wanted to take on uh, as, as a violin student. So uh, I was selected to start on violin and, and after one year of school instruction, he said to my parents, now, uh, Willis is good enough that he ought to have private lessons with me. So <laughs> I started taking these private lessons as a fourth grader. By the time I got to junior high school, I wanted to play in the band. But noticing there were no violins in the band, I needed to pick up a band instrument. So I remember the band director sliding open the door of the instrument room, and there was this beat-up baritone horn and this gleaming French horn. And I said, I'll take that one. <laughs> Not even knowing what it sounded like. Or what, you know, I said, I'll take that one. Right. <laughs> Shiny. Packed uh, uh, around with a horn during junior high school. But I also had braces on at the time. All this orthodontic work. And I don't know, there just wasn't enough red wax in the world to cover those braces and make it work with a small horn mouthpiece. And so I, I, I was very frustrated with that. Right. And right. finally in the ninth grade, um, I guess you could say my father made the mistake of taking me to see the world's greatest drummer, Buddy Rich. Oh, wow. And this was at the Lambertville Music Circus in New Jersey. And some might remember this was a tent outdoors that had a circular stage in the middle. And every 15 minutes, the stage rotated a quarter turn. <laughs> Got to see Buddy Rich from front side and back both times. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that that's it. I want to be a drummer. So my dad found a drum set teacher, and I played drum set during my ninth grade year. And uh, then, of course, uh, uh, going into 10th grade and going into the high school, uh, meeting the other drummers in the band, they said, well, you, you got to take lessons with Gibbs. I mean, he's, he's like the only guy in town. So I found out who Orr's Gibbs was. and signed up for lessons with him and uh, started with him in the 10th grade. And I remember the first lesson, he asked me a, a very interesting question, which I had not thought about. He said, what are your goals? There's a 10th grader being asked, what are your goals? And I said, well, I, I want to become a better player. I, I understand drum set, but I, I, I want to learn more about concert percussion. I said, and actually, I'd like to audition for the district band and orchestra mm -hmm. and he just laughed at me and said oh, well you, you'd have to practice hours a day to get good enough to do that oh boy that's all i that's all i needed to hear so challenge i buckled down in 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 the biggest way and then of course 11th grade i'm at the new freedom high school district band district orchestra auditions come up i audition i was accepted into both I actually went to the region uh, in both uh, th those years as well. So, uh, but he, he threw down the gauntlet. He laid down the chair. Yeah. yeah, and you took it seriously. And I did, and I did. <laughs> yeah, wow. And so anyway, the uh, uh, I guess the thing I should have mentioned along the way with this is when I started the horn, uh, I was not allowed to give up violin lessons. Mm. And when I started percussion, I was not allowed to give up violin lessons. I, I, you know, absolutely had to continue with those. In fact, I continue with private violin lessons all the way through my senior year. And when I said to Mr. Rankwitz, well, I'm thinking about auditioning for music school to be a music major. He started giving me repertoire, thinking I was going to do this on violin. Yeah. 
and I learned it because I was a beautiful student. Yeah. Uh, finally, my father said, you're going to have to tell him you in percussion, <laughs> not violin. So, so anyway, uh, uh, again, not to I've already made this too long of a story, but- uh, No, I'll, no, that's great. I'll finish it out for you. <laughs> Thinking that I may have wasted all these years as a violinist, and why couldn't have I started earlier as a percussionist, uh, I, I go to college, and, and uh, in addition to music theory, we had oral activities or oral skills courses, right. like singing, ear training, dictation. And I had absolutely no problem with this at all. And I couldn't figure out why my percussion friends were struggling with this ear training end of it, not knowing that my ear training came through my string education. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I do remember learning all my major scales on the violin and then uh, shifting to the minor scales. And, you know, he'd yell at me and he'd say, don't you hear that? Don't, you know, if I, if I the fingers yeah. fly or something, I didn't have the flatted third, you know, don't you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize how blessed I was for all of that. Right. So then after my freshman year of college, I, I really wanted to learn much more about timpani, to, to be a, an artistic timpanist, and went back to my high school teacher and said, uh, what do you think I should do? He said, well, who would you like to study with? And I said, well, if I could study with anybody in the world, it would be Fred Hinger. He was the timpanist of the Philadelphia Orchestra and had recently become the principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. So he said, well, uh, you call him or write him a letter, tell him what you want to do. So I did, and he invited me to his home in Leonia, New Jersey, to play for him. Wow. After which he stated, I'm more of a finishing teacher. I teach uh, older students at Curtis, and now I'm at Manhattan and Yale. And, and you're, you're really, as an 18-year-old, you're kind of young for me to be dealing with as a student. Yeah. So what I want you to do, since I compare everything to string teaching, I want you to go and study the violin for two years and then contact me about lesson. And by the time he said that, I just, I almost had the biggest grin on my face. He said, what are you smiling about? Said, well, actually, I started violin in the third grade and played it all the way through my senior year. He said, yeah. excellent. We'll start next week. Yeah. <laughs> my first lesson, he asked a question. I thought, how ridiculous. He said, so who is your violin teacher? And I said, oh, um, I, I said it was a retiring gentleman that, that moved down from New York State. His name was Walter Rankwitz. And he said, Walter, you study with Walter. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so that's when I realized this big world of music may not be as big as we think. Yeah. <laughs> it became abundantly clear to me that those were not wasted years. Mm -hmm. I, I was becoming a musician. Mm -hmm. And... and just and a well-rounded all that training. at that yeah yes well that's it and, and and that when i got into orchestral conducting because i understood right. <laughs> mm -hmm. right right yeah no that's that's amazing so when when did you did you always know that you wanted to be a professional musician i mean you had quite the background but like um i think actually fred hinger thought maybe i was uh preparing to maybe take orchestral audition, you know, why, why else are you coming to study with me? Mm. I just wanted to be, I wanted to become a better player and more deeply involved in all of it. Mm -hmm. And, and he exposed me to some things that again, uh, as an 18 year old, I couldn't figure out and maybe it shows a little bit of my arrogance and whatnot at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, 
he gave me a book to read. And he says, I want you to read this before your next lesson and then we'll discuss it. And the book was entitled Kincaidiana by John Crell. I know this book. Kincaidiana, a flute player's <laughs> notebook. The life and teaching of William Morris Kincaid. I, I see Morgan smiling here. He yeah, yeah. Knows the book well. And, and Krell admits during his time at Curtis, he doesn't know, was this all Kincaid? Was some of this uh, Tabuto, the oboist? They coached chamber music together, but he, he kept, he was a voracious note taker, took notes on napkins and envelopes and anything he could, and later on put this book together. So anyway, why am I reading a book about a flute player? <laughs> you know, so I, I read it, try to take it in. And he said to me, now, now that you've read the book, he says, I want you to go back and read it again. And this time when he says breath, you think stroke. Well, let's transfer it into your instrument. Mm -hmm. Because he then admitted to me when he, he was a young player when he became the timpanist of the Philadelphia Orchestra, mm -hmm. very young. Mm -hmm. And he said, I learned from William Morris Kincaid. I learned from Marcel Tabuteau. I learned from Bernard Garfield. I learned from Anthony Giuliani. He, he focused on those four woodwind players. He just felt that they were the epitome of, of understanding of tone color, mm -hmm. uh, of breath support, of phrasing, and, and uh, uh, he owed so much to them. So then I began to understand it a little more. And then, mm -hmm. then he got me into the chapter on phrasing, which of course is hard to understand until you become a little bit more of a mature musician. But uh, he, he took me through all all the phrasing concepts so anyway it was a it was a it was a great book i know years later i returned to take some lessons um, when i was teaching in louisiana um, i thought he was going to be teaching a one-week symposium at manhattan and it was canceled due to low enrollment for some reason so he said well, look you already paid in the money he says just come up to my house and we'll do lessons every day so i had five to six hour lessons for five days in a row Wow. 1983, which is when he retired from the Met. Oh. And uh, we, we just, you know, went, went back over everything again. And, 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 yeah. depth and uh, well, uh, and it meant so much more to me then because I had that period of time, you know, to reflect. And that just speaks to those universal principles of music that just apply to every instrument when you're talking about phrasing and breathing. You know, whether you're playing the piano or percussion, it, it all applies. And that's why I always said to my to the students at uh, Kutztown University when I was chairing the department and teaching there, mm -hmm. I'd say, now we have a vocalist coming in to do a master class for the voice students, but all of you need to attend because mm -hmm. there is something to be learned from everyone. And, and I would tell them, and I was honest about it, I said, I learn something new every day. And the days I love the most are when we have visitors that come and they talk to us about music. And yes, I'm a percussionist, but, but there, there is so much for all of us to learn. So we, we really try to develop that culture of you just, you, you need to get there whenever music is being talked about and let it soak in and mm -hmm. figure out what sticks after the fact. <laughs> right, right.
To your point, I think, you know, that was one of the biggest things I learned when I was at Ohio State. My teacher, Kathy Bush-Jones at Ohio State, that was her, one of her big things for all of us. You never stop learning. There's always something to learn. And I just said this to a student, when we would have master classes, she would sit and take notes with the rest of us. You, She wanted to absorb those new ideas that people were bringing to campus and, you know, think about how they fit in with how she taught. And, and we, we become much better musicians once we start teaching our instrument, yes. oh yes, students ask questions of us that require thoughtful answers that make sense to them. Or when we try to present something and they don't get it right away, how do we present that in another way? Because right. learning happens in so many different ways. Absolutely. And on that subject, I, I, I do have to reflect back to a, a dear colleague. Uh, he, he is now passed, but his name was Dr. Samuel Bellardo, he was a, a, a piano teacher, piano professor at Kutztown University. But uh, he was a Juilliard graduate. He had studied composition with Vincent Persichetti. And uh, I remember when I, as a department chair, would have to go into classes and do a faculty observation for a report. I would have to write it come up in the evening. Uh -huh. Dr. Bellardo would be in theory level one he would be teaching a concept, put it on the board, and then he'd stop for a moment and look at all the eyes in the classroom and say, okay, let me do this another way. And then, and then he would go back and do it again, completely different, but getting to the same. Yeah, right. He'd look around, he goes, okay, one more time. And, and he, he told me he could look in the eyes of students and tell when they were not grasping what he was teaching Right. That I, I have to learn to teach everything four different ways to get to everybody. And he was, but the students who are really good, they say, I love him because he's so patient and he just, he hammers the point home. Mm. Well, he hammers it home if you got it the first time. Right. <laughs> That's true. And your third, it, you know, it was, it was, but anyway, just right. gifted, not only a gifted performer, but a, but a gifted teacher. Mm -hmm. So recognized by his students that Wow. And again, that was another day of, boy, I've learned something new. I, I need to, I need to seek multiple ways to teach what I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. What, what made you decide to go into conducting in, in particular? When did you make that uh, decision? That, that's another rather interesting story. And again, it's, it's all because of a mentor. Okay. Um, when I, I mean, I can say it now because the years have gone by. <laughs> when I first started at Millersville, it's like, you're hired to do the marching band and percussion. That's your job. No, you're not the assistant concert band conductor. You're just marching band and percussion. So then when I was recruited to teach at Southeastern Louisiana University, it was, you're the director of marching band and the music admission counselor. You're our recruiter. Okay. Well, I'm not interested in this job unless I can also teach percussion. Well, okay, if you get a graduate assistant come in with you, then you can teach percussion, do the marching band, and recruit. Again, no concert band. So when I got to Iowa State University, Joseph Christensen, who was the director of bands, sat me down my first week there, and he said, I cannot believe you taught at Millersville for four years and Southeastern for three years, and in seven years, you have never been given the opportunity to conduct a concert band. He says, that is criminal. We're going to change that. I'm giving you the third band. Don't worry. 
They're engineering majors. Among us. No music majors to deal with. He says, I'll tell you, they're smart kids. So they like technical stuff. So think about that when you pick literature. But he said, the important thing is, I want you to come to my office one hour before my wind ensemble rehearsal. And I'm going to show you how I prepare for my rehearsals. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, an hour with me, three days a week, showing me how he prepared to, you know, get me on the podium to work with this third concert. Right. And he's the one that said, you know, there's an excellent program in Calgary for conductors. They take 25 from the U.S., 25 from Canada and Europe. And he okay. says, you can use my top wind ensemble for your audition tape. Mm. He says, you just have to learn the scores they're working on. Yeah. So, okay. Then, except that again, but if it wouldn't have been for Joe, first of all, recognizing yeah. that I would become more of a new podium musician by conducting the concert band and giving up his time to help me learn how to do that and then getting me to a program that could really help me develop right. as a conductor I, it, it just never would have happened <laughs> right and like what a gift that is of his time yeah yeah first recognizing that where you wanted to be and where to take you, but to, to give you that gift of, of time and yeah, that's and it, and it, and that then makes you want to do the same for your students. Um, Absolutely. So so that's <laughs> yeah, okay. that's really what got me going. So it was it was the two years at Iowa State that sort of got me going as a podium conductor, and yeah. then of course. Uh, when I came to Kutztown University in 1986, it was to direct the marching band, direct the concert band, and start a percussion program. So, okay, so then how long were you in Canada? Two years? Uh, those, those were summer programs. Uh, oh. We went for three summers in a row to, uh, it was essentially like a second master's degree, but instead of going that route, I decided to do the professional diploma. Okay. I think the, the final project was different. Right. And okay. each summer was devoted to a different um, era of literature. Okay. So we studied you know, the, the most modern, uh, slice in the middle where <laughs> lot, lots of the wind band repertoire comes from. And then uh, Vondis Miller, who ran this program, and, uh, and uh, Linda Pimentel, who was his associate, they would invite in uh, internationally known conductors to visit for one week. So my first week there was Frank Battisti from the New England. Mm -hmm. uh, my second week there it was John Painter from Northwestern University. And so, I mean, big, big, big name people. And then they were the ones who watched you conduct. Uh, you, you had conducting sessions twice in one week. Uh, they were able to get through 50 conductors in two days, you know, 25 in two days, 25 in the other two days. You were given so much podium time in front of the band. When you weren't conducting, you were playing in the band. And the University of Calgary also had a summer band. So it was a full symphonic band instrumentation. And then they'd videotape you and then they'd whisk you off to a private room where uh, they would let you know everything that went wrong. Right. <laughs> I'll do better next time. Right, right. Very, uh, Wow, and, and I must say, I I wouldn't have been ready to go into doctoral study 
for instrumental conducting had I not done that professional diploma program. I wouldn't have been accepted. I wouldn't have had uh, yeah. the background that I needed. So when you pursued your, um, your doctorate at Catholic University, was that while you were teaching or was that? Uh, to, to, give you, to give you a sum total of uh, four years at uh, Millersville, three years at Iowa State, uh, three years at Southeastern, two years at Iowa State. So at that point, I thought, well, I better stay at Kutztown longer than one year. <laughs> it kept going down. Yeah. Well, anyway, after 11 years at Kutztown, 20 years in higher education, I took a sabbatical to work on a doctorate. Okay. And I really felt that after 20 years of teaching, I knew exactly what I wanted to learn, exactly what I didn't know. And the one thing I asked uh, the dean at Catholic is whether or not I might be able to study both wind conducting and orchestral conducting. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, the only way you can do that is to satisfy the recital requirement for both. I said, that's fine. That's what I'm coming here to do. I'm coming here to conduct. The more I can conduct, the better. Right. She says, that means you double up on lessons. Fine, that's why I'm here. And, mm -hmm. and I, went, I went full time. I took, I took sabbatical leave from Kutztown and uh, I remember we had uh, commencement on whatever that Saturday was in May. The next Sunday, I drove to Washington. The following Monday, I started some classes. Okay. All summer, next fall, next spring, and the following summer. Wow. Get my 57 credits done. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of sabbatical too, yeah. Some of it was uh, independent study stuff and a lot of extra time, but I was there and I was, you know, devoting devoting time to it full time. Uh, my wife, Joan, kids that uh, in that year that I went in uh, 1997 was the year that our oldest daughter, Julia, started her college career as a freshman. Yeah. She would say to people, well, I went from no kids in college to two kids in college. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was at home with the, with the younger daughter then, dealing with the 16 year old. Right. I was able to get home on average of twice a month because my, uh, my, my, there was nothing going on on a Friday there. Everything was Monday through Thursday. So orchestra rehearsal was over at six o'clock on Thursday. I, I usually could be home by nine. And then my first class on Monday wasn't until three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. so basically, I could be home, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, have that long weekend. I had to bring things to do, study and whatnot. But, mm -hmm. And it wasn't every other weekend. Sometimes I was down there three weekends in a row and then home two in a row. But it, it, it worked out to maybe twice a month I could get home for the weekends. Right. And it did go fast. It really went fast. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, when you're and that That's because I was so busy. You, know? yes. <laughs> you have that much to do. <laughs> so, so when you um, studied both um, wind and orchestral conducting um, and you went through that entire year and a half or so. Um, did you have a preference? Uh, was there one that you preferred more than the other? Well, the, the, the exciting thing was that for winds, the Catholic University did not have a full wind band or wind ensemble or wind symphony or anything. So it was all chamber winds. So all I studied was the great chamber winds works, which was such a thrill. Yeah, that's neat. Garofalo would put together an instrumentation for me of the, the doctoral students. Uh, some of them were in the military bands and whatnot, and arranging 
rehearsal schedule for me. I'd say, okay, this is what you're going to learn. This is what you're going to conduct. And I remember the first thing he said. Now, these people don't need to be taught how to count or read music. They know all this. So your, your comments are all about the music, as it should be. But he said, the teaching here is going to be very different. So, so that was that, that was a great deal. Yeah. Orchestral conducting, on the other hand, which I had not done, uh, Peter Gajewski was my uh, conducting professor. He was, uh, at that time, and he still might be, he was conducting the uh, National Chamber Orchestra. It's a chamber orchestra in Washington, D.C. He was in as their orchestra conductor. I remember the first day I met him, uh, he said, well, I understand you're, you're basically a band guy that wants to learn orchestra. And I said, yes, but I said, I, I, I've been the principal timpanist of the Allentown Symphony for 15 years. So I really feel like I know the repertoire from a performer standpoint. Okay, so he reaches back on his bookshelf and pulls out this book. He says, Shades of Mr. Hinger, you know, he says, a book I want you to read. Uh, and he says, you come back and see me Monday and we'll talk about it. So the title of the book was The Composer's Advocate by Eric Leinsdorf. Now, Leinsdorf had conducted at the Met as a guest probably more than any other conductor and had uh, amazing insights and stories to tell. But his whole premise was as conductors, we need to kits for what the composer wanted and not just go off on our own egotistical way saying, well, this is how we're going to do it because I think this is how it should be done. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to know if I agreed with the philosophy that we should be an advocate for the composer. And, and I said to him, well, absolutely. I'm not sure I'd know what else to do. <laughs> you know, right. I haven't had that kind of experience to say, oh, well, this is, you know, like I'm going to do Bolero slower than it's ever been. It's going to be great. You know? no. Please no. Yeah, right. And the orchestra walks off stage. Well, I, I do remember uh, being at a Philadelphia Orchestra concert one night that was guest conducted by a Frenchman. I don't even remember his name. But it was the slowest bolero I had ever heard. Oh, no. It was, it was painful. I mean, it was just like not letting the orchestra be the orchestra. So I think that's what Lonsdorf uh, was talking about, things like that. Mm -hmm. so I said, no. I said, I really believe in that. He says, well, fine. He says, we'll get started. And he said, uh, let's begin with Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 1. And I sort of smiled. And he says, why are you smiling? I said, because when I studied timpani with Fred Hinger, that's the exact symphony we started with on timpani, Beethoven 1. Oh, that's great. It's, it's a good starting place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to me, it, it you know, the, it was diverse. It was diverse. It was so different, you know, uh, learning the orchestral literature, not from a performer state, but now really getting into the score, seeing what that was all about. Although, I, I will say, as I prepared timpani parts for orchestra rehearsals, I always, I always got the scores anyway. I mean, that's I wanted to see what everybody else was doing, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my, my preparation always started with listening to great recordings and, and watching the score, doing that four or five times before I'd ever sit down behind the drums and prepare yeah. my parts. But I, I always I always prepared my parts. And, and timpani is one of those things, you know, you play an excerpt and then you got a lot of measures rest. And then you play an excerpt and you got a lot of so you could really think about how you wanted to play the stroke type and all that. But I always, I always made it a policy to have my eyes on the conductor before their eyes ever came up to meet mine for a mm. I was always there first, looking yeah. at and ready to go. Because basically, 
I knew my excerpt. Like I could play my excerpt without reading the music. And, and some right. people say, well, you have an awful lot of time to prepare for something you could sight read. But that that wasn't the point of it for That's me. That's not the, the idea. From my teaching, you know, what what do you bring to this part? That and and how are you listening to the orchestra around you? So anyway, yeah, I digress. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. That's that's mm -hmm. wonderful to have such a prepared timpanist. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 how long did you play with the Allentown Symphony? Well, uh, as I said, I was uh, uh, 15 years, and then then I took this uh, sabbatical to go uh, uh, do my doctoral work at Catholic U. So I took a year's leave of absence. Okay. And, uh, and uh, during that time I was away, I guess the maestra had done some additional conducting study herself and had changed her style somewhat. Mm -hmm. So we came back, you know, I'm, I'm away here, I'm here, we're ready to go. Gives this downbeat and I, I didn't play. That's, uh, she says, are you all right? I said, yes. Please again. I just she, mm -hmm. she did something that didn't look like a downbeat was coming. I don't know. And right. then uh, I, at some point at the break, I think one of the horn players leaned over and said, "You know, she's been doing some other studying now." And I, well, yeah, I'm noticing that. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been away from it for a year. <laughs> right. All good. All good and all positive. But I just, you know, just different. Yes. And and then the truth of the matter was, um, I, I was I was back from the sabbatical leave. Uh, I had one more year to do my, uh, you know, my defense and my uh, uh, dissertation defense and uh, you know, the oral business and, and, and the final recital. And so my degree was conferred the next year. And, and I continued, you know, traveling to Allentown to do the rehearsals and the concert. And, and I remember because of being so busy as a department chair, being very tired when I'd leave the university and drive up and do the rehearsal, uh -huh. but driving home very energized from the rehearsal. It was just, oh, it's great to play and I love doing this. Uh -huh. And then the next year it was sort of the other way around that I was driving home sort of half falling asleep. So uh -huh. then uh, my, my good wife, Joan, recognized that uh, this isn't the way it should be. And so she started driving me through rehearsals so, yeah, so she got to sort of see the ins and outs of uh, orchestra rehearsals, <laughs> whether she liked it or not. <laughs> but then at the end of that year, we just decided, you know, there, I, I'm spinning too many plates. I just, just can't do it. So um, I, I, uh, I substituted for them since, you know, that time. Okay. And, and actually a new and very exciting thing that came along in recent years is they got uh, they meaning Allentown Symphony. Mm -hmm. Got service electric cable vision to do a 10 camera shoot of their concert, edit it, and then reprodcast it two weeks later. Oh, great. And so then Diane Wittry asked if I would sit in the truck with the production crew and essentially call the shots. So I would, I would put together a, a storyboard ahead of time yeah. with timings and rehearsal numbers and, you know, here's the oboe solo coming next or whatever. And right. then I come to rehearsal to check my timings, which I just use standard recordings, but check my timings against Diane's timings. Mm -hmm. That's where I learned that Diane Wittry has an impeccable sense of time. Mm -hmm. When she decides on tempo she wants for a symphony, the timing of that four movement symphony is unbelievably close. Oh, I mean, wow. within a minute, mm -hmm. that consists 
Wow. And I just learned that by, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. following the time, you know, punching in the stopwatch and all that. But then I would sit right. in the truck and tell the, 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 the uh, producer, I guess you could say, and then he's right. on a headset shouting to the camera operators where they need to be and whatnot. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so, there's, no, there's nothing worse than, you know, a flute solo and the cameras on, like, the violin section. Right, right. Or, or <laughs> it moves there too quickly. Yeah. And so uh, his philosophy was they ran 10 cameras solid. So he had 10 cameras of the wow. And then he could go back in the edit because if you, like, if they did shift to the instrument too yeah. fast, he didn't like right. the composition of that shot. Then he'd, he'd find another angle before they went to the angle that he wanted right yeah so, that's so cool so yeah. i i still get to do that for them uh, yeah first one we did was a was an ice show they called it symphony on ice they were in the in the hockey arena where the phantoms play hockey up there mm-hmm. they were on a stage that had skaters on oh, the yeah. and, and, uh, in that in that scenario i was actually in the room with the skaters in the orchestra on a headset telling the guy in the truck what yeah. was and that seemed sort of weird and after that right. was, well, what a truck with us. You can just watch the 10 monitors. <laughs> right. Oh, that's so cool. Well, yeah. And so you've been, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, we, we've been doing that a handful of years now. So, uh, okay. Uh, All right. They did chamber orchestra works during COVID. I was going to say, so that started body, that was you know, pre-COVID. Was up and all that. And then uh, we would record those and then they would, they would send those out as a, a way of keeping the orchestra in the minds of the subscribers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in addition to that, I mean, you've been involved in, in many other organizations. So like we had mentioned Reading Pops earlier um, that you said you were like since 2000. Um, and then you also had mentioned um, were you part of like the Music Performance Trust Fund um, Middle School Jazz Initiative. Yes, when, when uh, Jerry Hare let me know that there was some money available for um, instruction, mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, the Reading Musical Foundation does a terrific job with music in the schools. It's an enrichment yeah. program for elementary students, um, and, and, and we alternate every year. We do strings one year, woodwinds one year, and, and, and brass percussion the next year. Uh, but I, I've had educators that said, boy, it's, it's a shame there's nothing for the middle school. Kids. And then we started to think about, well, one of the things that a lot of directors try to do in middle school is, is get them interested in jazz because it's such a personal form of expression, Lear- learning how to improvise. And, and, you know, you're the second trumpet player, so you're the only person playing that part. You know, the responsibility, like, like in a chamber music ensemble. Mm-hmm. And we put together a, a, a pilot program just using the middle schools in Reading the first year. Mm-hmm. It was so successful, we, we, we were able to get more funding and spin it out to really any of the middle schools that wanted to do it. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was great until the pandemic came. And then, uh, you know, we, we tried to do it on Zoom with breakout rooms. And I, I think we had more uh, challenges with the technology than anything. You know, uh, yeah. like three of the four breakout rooms would work. And then, uh, you know, the poor trombones were someplace where they couldn't get an internet signal or something. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, it, it was nice that, uh, you know, they could back get back to doing that face-to-face again but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, again the, the 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 fact that that enrichment program can be offered to middle school directors uh, with professional jazz musicians oh yeah no cost to the school Just such an enriching things for the students yeah enjoyed yeah, it that's 
and 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 you've also conducted many uh, festivals, correct, through PMEA? Yes, yes. I, I, I love these music festivals, and that, that just harkens back to when I was a high school student in those honor bands and orchestras. I just remember saying to myself, knowing then I was going to go to college to be a, a teacher, well, if, I ever, if I could ever get half as good as these great cast conductors that I've been under, I, I would love yeah. to do this and, and, and give that back to students. And so yeah. that... That has become a very fulfilling for me. It's, it's probably, uh, it's probably my, my favorite sort of conducting to work with students uh, that way, to bring pieces that their directors might say, well, I don't know, do you really think so? This is this is a pretty hard piece. Yeah, it is, but there's a story behind it and, and I have a way of teaching it. And oh, I have a marked set of parts for this. I've, I've figured out how to teach this piece in, in far less time because it's it's all diagrammed in their parts, you know. Mm-hmm. When you have an important part and when you don't, lot lot of color pencil on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the, on the road set of parts and whatnot. But anyway, I've yeah. that a lot. And and years after, when when uh, former members of those groups have come up and said hello to me or something, and they'll say, "I was in your," and I said, "Well, tell me what year it was and where it was, <laughs> and then I'll mention a piece." And they'll say, "Oh yeah." That was my favorite piece in that concert. So I thought, okay, so then the music is what's connecting us. It really is yeah. all about the music. I mean, yeah. okay, they remembered who I was, but that, that was the important part. The important part was we delivered a piece of music, maybe a cornerstone work in mm. literature that maybe they didn't like at first, but, but grew to admire it. And years later say, that was one of the best pieces I ever played. So right. that, that's where great music leaves its legacy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, the so your latest project though has been um, the Center for Mallet Percussion Research, the building project, um, and this is through Kutztown, um, and it's going. It is on the campus of Kutztown University, correct? It is. Uh, interestingly, it's a parcel of land that is landlocked by university property because the university foundation over the years bought up main street properties to mm-hmm. repurpose them. So, you know, the alumni center, the admission center, places like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are on main street properties. But uh, Mr. Jacob Esser, who had a beautiful home on main street, when his son came of age, they subdivided the land and Esser, the son built a house, shall we say on the back part of the property, okay. uh, facing the science building, not that, that you know the layout of the campus but anyway facing the science building and uh that little house got overgrown by large trees <laughs> over the years and it was uh, a foundation owned asset that would, they would rent out to athletic coaches as a you know a home that they could rent out to stay for for a, a, a very competitive rate mm-hmm. and it was decided well since the foundation had this piece of property maybe the home could turn into the museum and we could build a little performance facility next to it. Mm-hmm. And then um, Mr. Richard Wells, uh, who has been a, a lead donor for this project, got involved and asked a, a very insightful question. He said, well, how much more would it be to just knock down that house and start all over the brand new building? And when, we, uh, when the architect shared the figures, he said, well, I think that's the direction we should go. Yeah. So then we got started with what was going to be a slab and a two-story building. And then uh, 
about a year into it, he asked the next insightful question. Well, now, Frank Kumar, who's the current percussion teacher, he says, Frank's going to be able to move the whole operation over here, right? Well, no, it's, it's, there, there are exhibits and, and research rooms and things. Oh, he says, that's wrong. He says, this, this needs to be a building that students use every day. We use the whole programming. So he essentially sent the architects back to the drawing board. And that's how the full basement came about. Okay. So, so we really added one third more <laughs> square footage to the building than was wow. originally anticipated. Yeah. And, uh, on the website, it, I'm sorry, on the website, it said that it was 2,100 square feet. Is that? that that's lot? the performance hall. I think the whole thing is 13,250 wow. square feet. Oh. So it's. Wow. Different numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. My information was wrong. No, no, no. Your information was correct. 2,100 <laughs> square feet okay. is the performance hall. It's supposed to seat 100 people downstairs and 20 people on the balcony. Okay. And the reason we did a small balcony was we knew we wanted the, the performance hall to span two stories in height for acoustics. Okay. And we also thought if we didn't use the balcony, it could double as another exhibit space. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, these these spaces are are multi-use. While there are six named exhibits for specific errors of mallet percussion, they all will have instruments in them, which means they double as practice rooms. So students are in there during the day; they're in an exhibit room practicing. Um, the xylophone and marimba collection room are large enough to have quartet rehearsals in. Mm -hmm. Uh, the steel drum collection room is a huge room. You could probably put two steel bands in there. So wow. percussion ensemble could rehearse in there. And then you have the 2,100 square foot performance hall. So, and also beneath the performance hall is a very large archivals and instrument storage room. It's where the archives will live for researchers, but it's also where we can put all the instruments if we need to clear out the performance hall for a foundation social event so okay there's a huge freight elevator built in this building as well wow so it's it's almost like um a living museum in a way yeah. um because yes. it will be utilized yes because the collection is fully playable and we want people to do that you know yeah. if you want to play on claire omar muscle's personal marimba here it is in this room go ahead and play on it. wow uh, what, what, one of the things we were so excited about, and it just it's just a recent uh, uh, excitement for us, we realized we have enough material to devote the large second floor exhibit room to the women of mallet percussion. Mm. There are many, and wow. they were more prevalent than the men in mm. the early days. It was the women in the 1950s that were really the trailblazers for this instrument. And one of them is Japanese marimbist Keiko Abe, who's currently in her 90s uh, and, and in Tokyo now. And my understanding is there's an association that is going to build a museum in, in her honor in, in Japan. Okay. Obviously, just me. Yeah. But we have been in touch with Rebecca Kite, uh, also a, a fantastic solo marimbist who uh, was is Keiko Abe's biographer. She wrote Abe's biography. And every time Keiko came to the United States, it was Rebecca's 
five-octave Yamaha marimba that Keiko used, the concert ties. So Rebecca actually bought the first two five-octave marimbas that were ever manufactured by Yamaha to be sold in this country. And wow. she was saying, um, I have significant uh, holdings of Keikos that will go into your room celebrating women of malpercussion. And I'm going to put together about a 10-minute DVD loop of her playing with orchestras from all over the world. And then she said on the phone to us on this conference call, and how neat will it be for people coming into the room, seeing the video of Keiko playing on this Yamaha five octave marimba, and then they can play on the marimba right there in that room. Mm. I said, what are yeah. you saying? She says, I'm saying when your building's open, I'm bringing this marimba to you. Wow. So, so, I mean, we have had such an outpouring of people that this is a special instrument. It, it has pedigree. It has legacy. It belongs in your collection. Yeah. So that's how we've amassed over 60 different vintage, rare and valuable marimbas, xylophones, vibraphones, bells, chimes, and a host of what they call novelties <laughs> that, the, that the Deegan company made, like the stuff you'd see on a on a uh, an air-powered merry-go-round music box or something. You right. Know, Deegan right. would make those novelties. Right. So we, we have some of those as well. So, wow. Uh, and is there anything else like this? I imagine not. The only, I think the only thing similar to this would be the Rhythm Discovery Center in Indianapolis. It's a, a downtown Main Street facility in the, in the uh, mall district. And you can go in there and you can see Gene Krupa's drum set and Saul Goodman's timpani from the New York Philharmonic and one of Red Norvo's xylophones, but they're all sort of either behind glass or in an exhibit area that's a do not touch. So come in, enjoy it. Happy you were here. Have a good day. Researchers that are coming there will make an appointment in advance to see certain things, which they say they have in their archives. And then when it time comes to pass, Maybe the staff hasn't had the time to get them out fully and they don't want to take originals out. So they bring out photocopies and it's just uh, the, the place doesn't have a great reputation for researcher service, but that's what that's not what it's meant to be. Right. So mm -hmm. we decided that um, our collection, we have over 250 linear feet of archival materials documenting these great male players. Mm -hmm. It's fully accessible. Some of it, we want people to wear white cotton gloves when they go through the scrapbooks, for example, because we understand scrapbooks deteriorate. Oh, yeah. So you got to go through those with white cotton gloves. Um, but they'll be able to see these materials firsthand. We have invested in a software program. Uh, it's called Past Perfect. It's actually uh, uh, made in Exton, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, it, it is a catalog management, a collection management system that uses the same collection methods as, say, the Smithsonian Institute. So we are okay. we are doing a session number. We're, we're using the Smithsonian uh, method of collection and, and uh, uh, assigning numbers to things. And when it's done, I'm not sure when it will be done, but when it's done, a uh, visitor will be able to come in, be given an iPad, punch in what they're looking for, and tell them exactly mm -hmm. where to go and find it. Or oh. what we have, and, right. and um, so that'll be easier than just. Well, it's in one of these three tubs. You're welcome to dig through. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so. yeah, it'll be more user friendly for sure. Right. Um, right. Do, you, do you know when 
um, the entire project will be finished? Is there a date? Construction company tells us late August, which sounds very exciting. Of this year? This year. 22, yes. Okay. Now I keep going and saying, how are you going to do this? (laughs) Well, once we get past this, it'll really go fast. Once we get past this, it'll really go fast. Right. So they started on the drywall in the basement. Okay. And in one week, that team of maybe eight people had the basement drywall done. All right. And next week, they go on to the first floor drywall. They work from the basement up, you know, getting the electrical and the infrastructure in. And Mm -hmm. they say we're going to see things happen. They say the months of July and August are going to be unbelievable what happens week, 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 week. Okay. Uh, I will say the the R value, the insulation value of this building is incredible, but we told them going in what was going to be in there and that it's irreplaceable. Mm. I mean, it's not, not that just these are rare. A lot of these are one of a kind. If anything happens, there's nothing else. Well, they, they, they pour a concrete foundation, very thick. I, I, I forget how many tons of concrete went into this thing, all the concrete and rebar. Right. And then they... Uh, completely waterproof this concrete with a with a rubberized type of product and then they put some foil faced stuff over top of that then they put mm-hmm. inch and a half uh, foam board on top of that and then they had something on top of that before they ever put the stones in on the side so wow so super insulation for the basement and then you know we saw a a, a, a mildew resistant board that went on first and then that got sprayed with a rubberized waterproofing product and then these horizontal strips of fiberglass went on, and then these vertical two by four blocks of cement pour went on, and they all had to be taped with a, a web tape and mudded and cemented. And now wow. the, por- the porcelain tile goes on over top of that. So they just said the R value of this building is, is, is gonna be tremendous given what's gonna be inside. Yeah. And UV glass uh, and shades also, if they're, because there's a lot of glass in this building. Right. Which is wonderful because it brings in so much light from the outdoors. But also on the second floor, there are absolutely spectacular views of the campus. Mm-hmm. Building's up high enough. That it just, uh, wow. Really, really going to have its own presence. <laughs> so when the apocalypse comes, I want to be in the basement of the Center for Percussion. <laughs> I'm going to cut oh, down. I think so. <laughs> All right. That's well, that's that's awesome. And it's so exciting that this year that it's because um, how long has it had when did this start? Well, yes, the Center for Mallet Percussion Research uh, was born of an idea in the fall of 2014. OK, when we were able to acquire the estate of Claire Omar Musser. OK, of course, right. Musser is a name that's well known on mallet instruments uh, to this day. But it turns out he's the person that really singularly started such a massive movement for the marimba. He was born in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Oh. And I learned that when I was teaching at Millersville. And and, and this is another important story I share with people. You, You make friends with everyone. You take time for everyone. Everyone has a story and it's worth listening to. And this story came to me from the night custodian in Light Auditorium, Marshall ah. Donnelly, who said, mm-hmm. you know, Claire Musser grew up in Mannheim and he had a 100-piece marimba orchestra. 
and he came back here to Lancaster to recruit for it. You ought to go see Paul Mole downtown, the printer. He was in that orchestra. Have we not had that conversation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All that followed would not have followed. Right. Wow. Turned out, as I learned about this, you know, my first year there, fall of 1977, I thought I might have a, a, a concert celebrating this in spring of 78. It took till spring of 79 to get it all planned because it ended up being a reunion concert of the living members of the 1935 International Marimba Symphony Orchestra. So 16 living members were located. Eight of them agreed to play. They all let me bring their marimbas to to Millersville. Uh So I had 12 students in the marimba ensemble, uh, eight of Musser's 1935 players, and to top it off, I was able to convince Claire Omar Musser to fly here from Studio City, California and guest conduct. Wow. So at 78 cool. years of age, this ball yeah. of fire, <laughs> he lectured every day. Uh, he conducted this concert. Uh, he had a fabulous reunion with those 16 people. And uh, it, 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 it started my complete love of this whole idea of all things marimba and marimba ensemble. Yeah. I think all these years later that we would acquire uh, not not his entire holdings, but uh, his personal marimba, his personal vibraphone, mm-hmm. a lot of one-off recordings and books and photos wow. and things of that nature. So that's what started it. Mm-hmm. We, all heard we had this collection. Well, are you interested in our collection? Uh, uh, going way back to the early... Mickey Mouse cartoon. It was called Steamboat Willie. Mm-hmm. A xylophone is on there. His name was George Hamilton Green. And he and Joe Green were the great xylophone virtuosos in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, they had a third brother, Lou Green, who was the banjo player in the band. And he became Kate Smith's musical director. And so uh, these Green brothers uh, just, uh, again, they, they, they put the xylophone on the map. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a chance to meet uh, the son of Lou Green, Lou Green Jr., mm-hmm. uh, and the Green family has been so, so very generous to us. We have the entire family collection. We have an instrument that was used by George Hamilton Green. We have all the Edison cylinders that he recorded. We have the 78 RPMs that he recorded. Um, and they have endowed the room, the Green family room, uh, which will celebrate those brothers and their accomplishments. Their father was a, a, a bandmaster. He was a contemporary John Philip Sousa. We have letters in the father's scrapbook back and forth from Sousa to George Green Sr. Ah. And so just, wow. You know, so how, how do you put a value on a scrapbook like that? Priceless, especially for people who are researching certain things mm-hmm. and what's firsthand research. So, yeah. And that... Yeah. And- it's just incredible that all of that comes from one conversation that you have. Word of mouth, just this, this mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and it and it hasn't stopped. It just it just right. keeps happening. Just, just one thing leads to another, right? <laughs> so, so as an interesting aside, you know, most concert halls uh, have a green room. Mm-hmm. Well, this is <laughs> the green family, but it will be the green room. It's 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 very close to the performance hall. Yeah. Where the artists will wait before they begin. So it's the green green room. Yes, and uh, Mary intends <laughs> to furnish it like a Victorian parlor. So it will look like a parlor. Oh. We'll have 
the Edison cylinder players and the yeah. Victrolas. So, you know, if you want to go in and put a cylinder on and listen to what it sounded like, uh, you'll be able to do that. Oh, so it's a room that will really harken back to the era. What yeah. a facility, like what a what a neat thing to be able to provide, like you said, for research, but just so that you're you're preserving the history, but also like the practice of the thing, you know, so because it's not just to go there and see it, um, but it's also to do it and experience it and really bringing that history to life. And I think we'll, you know, Frank will say to his uh, percussion majors, okay, you're doing a George Hamilton green rag. You know where you're going to go practice. You're going to go practice on the old man's instrument. In there. <laughs> yeah, right. I think for our younger students, it, it, it really may hit them in a way that they just don't realize right now. I think it'll yeah. be, you know, you get in the room and then you say, boy, if this instrument can talk, that's yeah, right. really right. That's incredible. So uh, we'll, it, it's a legacy project, no doubt about it. The, the great thing is with such support internationally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have people from all over the world that have written these beautiful letters of support of this, and they almost tell the story better than we've been telling it ourselves. It's also going to be a place where concerts dedicated to now percussion history and, and uh, practice will yeah. take place. I've already been contacted from uh, a gentleman who has uh, an internationally known project called the Vibraphone Project. and. They're doing the same thing for the vibraphone, uh, encouraging people to write for it, uh, having conferences and concerts and things of this nature. And I said, well, we really need to schedule one of your concerts in our new facility. Yeah. Any any time after January 2023. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. I can't, and I can't wait to see this. I mean, my, actually, my, my son is currently attending Kutztown. Um, he's a computer science major. Um, so I've been on campus a lot in the past couple of years, but um, yeah, but certainly I can't wait to, to go see it. It's amazing. And we're, we're so excited, and, and then I'll get off of all this to kind of culminate it up. We're so excited about the grand opening, which we have scheduled for the first weekend of November. Okay. And uh, we are going to have uh, the Heartland Marimba Quartet who's really uh, our, our nation's premier professional quartet and uh, uh, are just champions of the marimba, the marimba performance. They're going to be our featured guest artists for that uh, uh, that Saturday evening uh, grand opening and kickoff. They're coming a few days before to work with Frank's students. Um, they're going to work on Sunday, I think, with high school students. And then on Monday evening, uh, they are doing a KU Presents concert with the Reading Pops Orchestra. So they have a concert for the Rumba Quartet and Orchestra. Wonderful. So the board of directors of the orchestra know about it, and, and anybody who's seen KU Presents uh, materials, uh, yeah. I would imagine uh, uh, hiring calls coming out fairly soon for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wait for the email. Anyway, anyway <laughs> looking forward to that. They're, they're, they're terrific musicians to work with, and, the scores they've sent thus far are really exciting. Wonderful. Mm. That's great. Easy That's music great. to listen to, enjoyable for, for an audience, and combining the forces of the Marimba Quartet. Great. That's awesome. I, so I hate to say this, but we are actually out of time. <laughs> Probably overtime, and I'm sorry. I, yeah, 
this is all good though. Um, it's yeah, it's amazing all of the things that you have accomplished yourself and um, what you've brought to this area. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. Well, and thanks to the two of you for this uh, wonderful initiative to develop these podcasts, uh, outstanding podcasts you've produced so far. It's thank really you. A, a great thing on your part. And uh, again, we just hope that we're doing everybody justice. <laughs> yeah. Well, and after this conversation, I think we I feel a little inspired about you know preserving like the legacy of things, and that was sort of our point with the podcast was just the history and the context of people's relationships you keep talking about different conversations and everybody having stories to tell and i think um already in just the six or seven episodes seeing those threads happening so and then today just really fits the theme yeah. well i'm so glad for that and thank you both so much for allowing me to be part of this absolutely thank you and thank you to our listeners um, this has been a lot of fun for Morgan and I to get to know our colleagues a bit better, and we hope you're all enjoying these conversations. Um, if you, our listeners, have any questions or suggestions as to who you might enjoy an interview of, or if you would like to sponsor any of our episodes, we have lots of musicians and students of musicians listening in, so please contact us at lifebetweenthenotes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and video versions can be found on our Life Between the Notes YouTube channel. So you can follow us at all of these places and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And with that, goodbye and thank you, Morgan and Will. <laughs>